Well, welcome everybody. You guys look good today. Impressive. I, Pastor Jonas was wearing his Easter flip-flops. I mean, this is really, this is like high-end stuff here. So uh, it's great to be with you all. Uh, before we dive in, um, I want to just recognize two things that um, we probably all know, but it helps us to say it out loud. It's kind of that elephant in the room kind of thing, right? Um, so uh, two different things that are true today. Uh, first of all, one of them is that um, I know that there's a bunch of you here that I see on a regular basis, but there's also a bunch of you here who are just passing through for lots of different reasons and uh, in lots of different ways. Um, some of you are here because of family. Maybe you're from out of town. Uh, some of you are here because uh, some sense of like, it's Easter and I feel like I should go to church because that would be the good thing to do. Some of you are here uh, seeking and uh, you have questions. Some of you are here because uh, you're obligated by someone else and that's okay. Um, to all of you, I, I want to say this, you are welcome here, and you are not just welcome here today, you're welcome here as we continue on this journey together. This is a safe place to ask questions and to doubt and to wrestle. We've been doing a lot of that over the Lenten season, and you're invited into that journey wherever you are in your journey, and so we're really glad that you're here. The second thing is this. Um, this is one of those Sundays that happens about twice a year where all of you know exactly what I'm going to say before I say it, which is a little awkward for me as a pastor, honestly. Like, there's not a lot of pastors who are going to stand up and say, well, happy Easter, turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't work that way. Um, I was thinking it would be really fun to just say, um, we're going to have our Easter sermon today from the Old Testament book of Lamentations, just to see, <laughs> see if you would dive in with me on that. Um, but the reality is, you know what I'm about to say, and yet, that's really good because there's a story that we have to tell again and again and again. So I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles and open to John chapter 20 to a story that is probably familiar to many of you, a story that um, some of you know by heart and some of you at least know by story arc. You have a, a pretty good sense of where we're headed. Um, we are going to wrap up today this series that we've been in called Encountering God in Dark Places. And you would maybe rightly ask the question, how are we going to do that in the resurrection? This isn't a dark place. This is a light place. And um, to some degree, that's true. But uh, resurrection comes out of the darkest place into light. And uh, that's a real story for us. Um, over the course of this Lenten season, we've looked at some of the difficult places that we find ourselves in our journey and tried to look at those things with honesty and, and reality. And um, I, although you don't have to have been through those messages to engage today, um, they may be helpful for you as you wrestle with things like doubt and sickness and uh, the silence of God. Those are real questions that the church often runs away from. But for today, I want to simply say this. If we run from the difficulties, we won't feel the joy or experience the joy that comes with resurrection. And that's the heart of what we want to look at today. How do we encounter God in the midst of resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus. There is a resurrection of us that's promised. That's a sermon for another day at another time. But today, specifically, I want to look at how do we encounter God in the midst of his resurrection? What does that look like for us? And so to do that, I want us to listen to this story from John chapter 20, the first 18 verses. Again, it's one that you're probably familiar with, so I want to encourage you to listen as though it's new to you, as though you're hearing this narrative for the first time. So Ty is going to come and read for us John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb and both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a, piece, in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you laid him? I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Reboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Amen. And that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ty. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we come today to your word, we invite you to speak to us. Just as you spoke to Mary in the garden, would you speak to our hearts, to our minds today? As we open up not just our minds, but our hearts, our spirits, our hands before you, God, would you come and lead us, speak into our hearts? Guard my words, Lord, that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten but the words that come from your spirit would remain, that they would penetrate our hearts and change us, that we would be more like you. And so, living Jesus, come and speak to our hearts today, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So again, a familiar passage, but one that I want us to dive into, specifically asking that question, how do we encounter God in the midst of his resurrection? 
And to do that, we need to start with some context. Um, it, it's uh, important for us to kind of see where the story came out of. This is the, the end of the story, not the beginning of the story. And so we need to get a little bit of context first. Then I want to ask the question, uh, why does John emphasize seeing so much? Uh, what's, what's it mean for us to see Jesus? And then uh, finally, uh, I, I want to ask the question that we've been asking throughout the Lenten season, how do we encounter God in the midst of this story? So context first, seeing Jesus, and then encountering God. So to give some context, I can't take as much time as I would love to to be able to talk to you about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and all of the pieces that go into that. And so instead, I'm just going to take one verse for each of those, one verse to summarize the life of Jesus and one verse to summarize the death of Jesus in order to give us kind of a jumping off point for where we're going today. So um, if you are in your Bibles, uh, if you have uh, John chapter 20, you can flip back just a little bit, back to the left, and you'll find John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is uh, in the midst of Jesus telling his disciples this uh, variety of different messages and things that are vitally important at the end of his life as he progresses toward the cross. And in John 14, 6, uh, John's going to make a statement. It's going to be on the screen in front of you as well, if you haven't found it yet in the text. Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the reason I chose that verse to summarize is because I think that that does a reasonably good job of showing what Jesus said and did as he invited the disciples to follow him, as he uh, did miracles in the world around him, as he taught and taught people how to live. Uh, that's kind of a summary statement of how that process went. Jesus said, uh, I am the way. So uh, there is a, a pathway by which you can live, the way that I'm teaching you, the way that I'm modeling for you, where the deepest desires of your hearts will be fulfilled, where you'll be able to experience the fullness of life that I've created you for. There's a certain way to live, and I have taught you that way. And then Jesus said, I am the truth. He doesn't say, I'm telling the truth. That's true, of course, he's not lying. But what he's saying is, I am the truth. I am the embodiment of the truth. And he uses this Greek word for truth that means transcendent, timeless truth. What he's saying is, I will always be the truth in every situation that you find yourself in, in every, uh, in every area of life that I'm speaking into. I am truth. I'm speaking truth, and I'm living and embodying truth into those areas. Those would both be massive claims by themselves, that he is the way, and that the way to the fullness of life is through him, and that all true things flow through him. That would be big enough. But that final claim, that he is the life, is something that no religious leader and no system of thought would ever claim by themselves. Jesus said, I am the meaning of life. I am the space where you're going to find life. There is no life anywhere else. Everywhere that you would find life is through me. The only true place that you can find life is through me. That's a fantastic claim and an incredible claim. And so if we summarize Jesus' life that way, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, using his words, um, there, there's, uh, there's got to be something that backs that up. And that's what we're going to look at in just a moment. That's the life of Jesus. But let's go to the death of Jesus. 
Rather than the crucifixion story defining for us the death of Jesus, I want to actually go uh, back just a little bit further in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10. Uh, John chapter 10 is a fascinating chapter in its own right. There's so much in there that we don't have time to cover today. I I just want to cover one verse in John chapter 10. It's verse 18. Jesus says this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Why is that important? Well, if you read the crucifixion story, it's um, reasonable to read the crucifixion story as an act of violence committed through state-sponsored murder of an innocent man. You can read that, and that would be appropriate. But Jesus is saying, that's not the deepest meaning. You could read it maybe a level deeper and say that the crucifixion is a victory for the demonic powers that are ruling over this earth, that there's a a spiritual war going on and the, the cross shows the victory of the demonic. But Jesus defines his death a different way. Jesus says, this isn't the the culmination of the power of Rome, and this isn't the victory of the demonic. This is a generous, self-sacrificial giving of my life. They didn't take my life from me. I gave it. I laid it down. If that's the case, both that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that all life flows through him, and he willingly gave his life in an act of generosity. What's happening in the resurrection of Jesus? That takes us to John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, Uh, The Apostle John is the writer of the gospel, and he's going to uh, use a a word for seeing over and over again. Uh, He's the author. What you have is the story of Mary coming to the tomb first, and then Peter and the other disciple coming. That's John's way of saying himself. So it's Peter and John that are coming. John wants to be humble about it, except for that part where he says he's a faster runner than Peter, which I think is really awesome, where he's like, the other disciple beat him there because he's a little speedier, but, and then it goes on, right? Um, so he's, he's alluding to himself. He's the other disciple that's coming. So Peter and John have come to the tomb. And, and what you'll see as you read through this text is the word saw, the word that is translated into English saw, uh, repeats itself over and over and over again. But what's fascinating is that John, when he's writing the gospel, uses three different Greek words to, that are all translated saw. That was something that until I studied this this year, uh, this season, I had never seen before. Uh, Pastor and writer John Tyson uh, kind of opened that up to me as he uh, expounded on those. And I think they're a really helpful way to see uh, the, the way that this story unfolds. So let me just walk you through them. If you go to verse number one, it says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That word is the Greek word blepo. And it literally means just like a glance, a, a quick look over. So Mary comes to the tomb and she glances at the tomb and she sees that the stone is rolled away. And she's like, it's not supposed to be like that. Something, something's going on um, that is n- not expected. A- and if we were going to survey, not just all of you, regardless of what your story has been coming into today, um, but literally the hundreds of millions of people who are gathering in churches all around the world today, what we would all agree on, in fact, um, not only us, but pretty much the rest of the world who's not in church today as well, what we'd all agree on is that 
something happened 2,000 years ago. Like, we may disagree on what happened, but something happened. Because here we all are, right, 2,000 years later. Like, something's going on. What is it that's happening? Well, Mary glances over, and for some of us, that's our story. We've glanced at it, and we've said, something's happening. I'm not sure what it is, but something's happening. But I know what it couldn't be is that Jesus rose from the dead, because that never happens. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people who've died. I don't know any of them who've rose from the dead. So that, it couldn't possibly be that. And so um, we start to have people who are creating theories as to what happened, because it couldn't possibly be that Jesus rose from the dead. I am going to, as best I can, we don't have time to survey all of the theories, there's a bunch of them out there, but I'm going to give you a few of them, and I am going to, um, to the best of my ability, represent them as accurately as the people who hold them do, in order for us to be able to try to engage uh, what it means to just kind of glance. You see, see the stone moved away, what might have happened? Well, one of those theories, uh, maybe the most popular one globally, is called the swoon theory. And what the swoon theory is, is basically Jesus was crucified, and as he was on the cross dying, uh, he uh, slowed his breathing to such an extent that he passed out on the cross, and because his breathing was so shallow, it wasn't noticeable that he had died, or it wasn't noticeable that he hadn't died. And so he, when he was taken down from the cross, he was still in this low-grade consciousness or maybe even a coma. He was wrapped up, placed into the tomb, still barely hanging onto life. And so three days later, when supposedly he rose again, he was really just coming back to life, resuscitating, and... Um, Probably he was hungry, right? Like he hadn't had breakfast, so he was looking for bacon and eggs. Not bacon, he was a good Jewish guy, but eggs, at least. Uh, he was looking, looking for eggs and potatoes maybe, I don't know, whatever. And so he, he's hungry, he wants to go eat, right? And, and so, so literally, that's the theory. The theory is that he, he didn't actually die, he was placed in the tomb alive. Now here's, there's a couple problems with that theory. Um, the, the number one problem with the theory is that uh, the Roman Empire was, was good at a lot of things, but they were really good at killing people, like really good at it. Like they killed thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and none of them still lived. Like that, that never happened. Like they were, they were professionals. Like they would put him on the cross, and they would do one of two things before they took him down from the cross. They would either break his legs if he was still breathing so that he couldn't push himself up and he could no longer uh, get air into his lungs so he would ultimately suffocate. Or, as they did, as it's recorded for us in the case of Jesus, they would take a spear and slide it up through his ribs, through his lung, and into his heart sack to make sure that he wasn't alive anymore. It's quite unlikely that one of those two things happened and Jesus just made it through. But let's say for just a minute, somehow he did. This theory would then espouse that two days later, having lost as much blood as he lost and having suffered as much as he did, when he resuscitated, he had enough strength to push away the stone, fight four Roman guards, and work his way towards breakfast. It, it just, I, and, and again, I'm trying to represent it as well as I understand it to be, but it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So some people have said, no, 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 it's not the swoon theory. This is quite literal. Uh, there is a twin theory out there that Jesus had a twin. 
He was, he was born as a twin, and uh, depending on the person who's explaining the theory, um, some people say that that twin had been hidden for years, or some say that that twin was just kind of uh, quiet in the background because Jesus was very much in the foreground, and so uh, the Roman government and the Jewish leaders didn't know about him because if they had known about him, that would have been a problem for him. Um, but what happened was that Jesus wasn't the one on the cross, but right at the last minute, there's a switch made, and the twin, Jesus' twin, um, went to the cross instead of Jesus. Um, so there's a lot of problems here that are um, worth at least quickly exploring. One of them is the fact that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was watching Jesus be crucified. I know of at least one set of parents of twins, and uh, parents know the difference. Even when the rest of us don't know the difference, parents of twins know the difference. There is no chance that Mary, after 33 years of life, would have gotten fooled by a twin being on the cross instead of Jesus. But uh, this also, this theory would also assume that somehow for 33 years it was kept quiet and after Jesus rose from the dead or um, was still alive because his tw twin was crucified, um, that uh, he, he also, that was also kept quiet and the body was just there and somehow hidden and never found out. But the biggest issue is that Jesus, when he showed up to his disciples, showed them the scars he showed them the fact that he had scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side where the spear had gone in, which is quite a party trick if you haven't been through a crucifixion. And so the quick glance says, okay, that, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Neither one of those two theories hold a lot of water. Let's keep going because when we get to verse uh, five and six, we have um, a, a, an interesting parallel here. Um, the other disciple, as I said, John uh, talks about how he outran Peter. Um, it says in verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. That's again the word blepo. But then in verse 6, it says, then Simon Peter came, following him, and went in the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. That word for saw is the word theoreo, and it means to gaze or to behold, to really look deeply at something. Peter walks in, and he sees that the, the grave clothes are over here in one section, and the face cloth is folded up over in another section, a, a, a startling level of detail that's being recorded for us, because Peter is looking at this and saying, all right, what's the solution to this issue? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense that Jesus would have rose from the dead. That's never happened before. So what could it be? What is happening here? And for many of us, we have taken that next step of saying, I, I recognize that it's not, that, that whatever happened is so significant that I shouldn't just glance and move on, but I should really start to ask questions. And so people have, over the years, asked some really difficult questions. Again, I'm going to give you two more theories. There are lots of them out there. But one of those theories is um, maybe the most prevalent one, is that the body was stolen. 
That was the theory that was uh, propagated by the Roman government. Um, if you read in Matthew's gospel, uh, the soldiers who uh, were there assigned to guard the tomb went back to say this is what happened and uh, they were told, hey, just keep that quiet, just say that you fell asleep and they came and stole the body. Um, that'll uh, cover us. That's the, the, the story that was told. The problem with that is if they stole the body, they would have had to keep that a secret for the rest of their lives, even to their death. Some of you have heard me say before, um, the, the reason I believe in the resurrection uh, at least one of them, is because of the Watergate scandal. The Watergate scandal is, uh, some of you are like, really? Yes, the Watergate scandal actually has a whole lot to say to us about the resurrection. So, um, <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Watergate scandal, you're going to have to do research on your own because I don't have time to explain all of it this, this morning. But basically what happened at a very, very thumbnail is there were some things that went on that were not supposed to go on, and there were only about 10 people in the White House that knew anything about it, President Richard Nixon and a handful of other people that knew anything about it. And all they had to do was keep quiet about it. That was it. Like, they just needed to say, for the rest of their lives... I don't know. No comment. That was it. Like, politicians are really good at lying. They should be able to do this, right? Like That should be really, really simple. But, but interestingly, in this small group of people who actually knew what happened, there was a guy named Chuck Colson who was there who ended up, uh, through his jail time actually, uh, served for this offense, uh, coming to faith. He wrote a book called Loving God. And this is what Colson said about it. With the most powerful office in the world at stake, a small band of hand-picked loyalists, no more than 10 of us, could not hold a conspiracy together for more than two weeks. It literally took two weeks for the whole thing to fall apart. And what they had to gain by holding the conspiracy together was all of the power and all of the wealth and all of the position, all kinds of really, really good things if they could just hold the conspiracy together. The disciples, if they hold the conspiracy together, they get all kinds of great stuff, like torture and certain death, right? Like, they no power. There, there's, it's not like Peter is ascending to what we understand the Pope to be right now. I mean, he's part of an underground movement that's being chased down on one side by the Roman government and the other side by the Jewish leadership. Like, it's not a, an attractive thing for him or any of them. Blaise Pascal, in his book, Penses, Ponces, uh, he uh, wrestles through some of this and, and he says it this way. The hypothesis that the apostles were knaves, which just means dishonest or liars, is quite absurd. Follow it out to the end and imagine these men meeting after, meeting after Jesus' death and conspiring to say that he had risen from the dead. This means attacking all the powers that be. The human heart is singularly susceptible to fickleness, to change, to promises, to bribery. One of them had only to deny his story under these inducements, or still more because of a possible imprisonment, torture, and death, and they all would have been lost. What Pascal is saying is the logical flow that says, uh, how likely is it that none of them ever told the truth because they held the conspiracy together in order to be tortured and killed for it. It's, it's impossible. The human heart isn't capable of doing that. So the stolen body theory doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So you have the possibility of the stolen body. 
you have the possibility of swooning, you have the possibility of the twin. Um, and, and then there's one more possibility that's out there, and that is mass hallucination. Now, I'm serious, this is a really sig significant theory that's out there, that the disciples so longed to see Jesus alive that they all together started to have hallucinations at the same time. There's all kinds of problems with this, of course. Um, but the, the first one is that they didn't know that Jesus was coming back from the dead. Like, they didn't know to even hope that. They didn't understand. They had never pieced all of that together. But even if they had, the idea that hundreds of people would have the same hallucination at the same time, except when they're in different places, because they're not allowed to see him at the same, uh, at the same time in two different places, right? Because that wouldn't work. Um, so they, they all have the hallucination together. And then what's even more remarkable is hundreds of them have the hallucination, and then hundreds of them stop having the hallucination at the exact same time. It's, it's just, it's impossible. Like it doesn't even, it doesn't even make any sense. That um, so much so that this is so deeply ingrained in their mind that when Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, he says, hey, there's a bunch of people alive still who are part of the fellowship who saw him alive. Go talk to them. They'll tell you about him. Like that doesn't sound like a hallucination. When Peter comes in and he does more than just glance, he gazes and beholds the reality of what's happening even as we try to piece together theories, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But let's just take another step down. Starting in verse 8, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. That word saw in verse 8 is the word harao, and it means to comprehend. When John walks in, he gets it. He, he starts to piece everything together. And without all of the benefit of these theories and all of the thought process and the logical process that we can walk through 2,000 years later, John looks at all of the available evidence and he says, as crazy as it is, this makes the most sense. And having looked over the course of many years at a lot of these different theories, I've told you a couple weeks ago, I'm a natural skeptic, that's the way that my mind works, I've... Uh, tried to investigate a bunch, and like I said, I've tried to represent them as well as I can to you as to what they're actually saying. I, I would simply say this, as wild and unbelievable as it is that Jesus rose from the dead, it's far easier to believe that than it is to believe any of the other theories that are out there. John looked and comprehended, but how do we encounter God in the midst of this? Because if you've been with us for any period of time, you know, one of the things I say over and over and over again is that we are not changed through more information. Information doesn't change us. So if you came in this morning and you were predisposed to believe deeply in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, you're convinced. But if you came in this morning and you have predis you're predisposed in your heart that, that this is crazy stuff, talk, this is like wild religious stuff that people say, all of the logic in the world isn't going to convince you because what changes us is not information but heart encounter, real connection. And that's what we find in the second part of this passage. So you go from Peter and John going through this level of seeing to Mary engaging Jesus. So let me um, skip down just a bit to um, verse 14. Mary is... Uh, Hearing from the angels first, 
And so uh, it says, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. When Jesus comes to Mary, he doesn't come with theories. He doesn't come with a logical construct. He doesn't even come saying, touch me. He speaks her name. He encounters her with love. And he engages her. What's that look like? Well, I think we see those kinds of encounters all around us all the time. Let me tell you the story of one of them. Um, there's a pastor named Tyler Staten, and he was a pastor for a while in New York City. He tells the story of going to an AA meeting with uh, someone in his congregation. It was in a uh, dark church basement in Brooklyn because that's where AA meetings are held. If you've ever been to one, they're usually uh, dark church basements and bad coffee. Those are the two things that signify as an AA meeting. And so they, they came together to this AA meeting, and uh, the meeting began um, in the way a typical meeting does with uh, those who are in their first 30 days of sobriety reporting. And so someone would stand up and they would say, my name's Joe, I'm an alcoholic, and I have 17 days sober. And somebody else would stand up and say, my name is Mary, I have 20 days sober. And one after another, kind of in rhythm, and there would be kind of polite applause after each one. Well, he tells the story of this one young man standing up, maybe in his mid-20s, and he's obviously shaking. He's nervous about being there. And he stands up, and he doesn't have the right rhythm. He forgets to say his name. He doesn't even say what's going on. He just stands up, and he says, one day. And everybody just looks at him because it doesn't seem like polite applause is the right way to go, but they're not really sure what to do. And in that moment of silence, there's an old man on the other side of the room who gets up out of his squeaky metal chair, because that's church basements, right? And um, like runs over to this guy, not through the aisleways, not in the polite way, but like climbing over chairs, pushing past people. And he comes over to this, this young man and he gives him this big hug and the young man just collapses into his shoulder weeping. Turns out that this man is 30 years sober, but he remembers. He remembers what it's like to be at that place where you, you're so desperate that you would show up to a church basement and trust all of these people with your story. Because you went out on Friday night with a group of friends for beers and two days later you ended up on the street and you're not even sure how you got there. Because you want to get up in the morning to go to work, but you can't stop throwing up, so you can't. Because your family has left because it's just too much and they're not willing to walk that journey anymore. This guy, 30 years sober, knows it. And he doesn't tell him all of the stuff. He doesn't lay out theories for him. He doesn't walk him through. Here's the pathway. He goes over and he hugs him. And he says, I'm with you in this journey. When Jesus comes to Mary, I believe that's what, she's, that's what he's doing. He's coming to her and he's saying, Mary, I know. 
I know how hard this life is. I know how challenging this process has been. I know how hard it is to believe right now. I know that everything in you says this isn't possible. But he speaks her name, Mary. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, makes this statement about the resurrection. He says, In many respects, I would find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims, and I can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, Easter means that he must be loose out there somewhere. Like the disciples, I never know where Jesus might turn up, how he might speak to me, what he might ask of me. A resurrected Jesus means that like Mary, Jesus is willing to show up in the midst of our life, to encounter us. It's not just that we're seeking to encounter him, but that if we're open, if we have a heart that's willing and prepared, he will come and encounter us. That just like he spoke to Mary, he'll speak to us. And so that's the invitation this Easter Sunday. To believe, certainly. To move from a glance to a gaze. And to move from a gaze to comprehending. But even more so, to allow the God of the universe to speak into your life. And I know that that can be terrifying. Just like that young man in that Brooklyn basement It's scary to step forward and to be open to a different kind of life. For some of us, we've been living in a pattern for a really, really long time, and it's safe, and it's normal, and it's not following after the resurrected Jesus. And there's an invitation to be encountered by him that changes us, that makes us a different kind of people. And so I want to invite you to just take a moment of quiet. Easter, like all holidays, is busy and loud. There's going to be a lot going on later today in many of our lives. So the worship team is going to come in a minute and they're going to lead us, but before they lead, I just want to ask you to take some time silent, to listen, and to be open to the fact that the resurrected Christ is willing to speak to us, that he comes to encounter us. If we believe in a God who rose from the dead, we equally believe in a supernatural God who can speak to us even here in this moment. So I'm going to invite you just to put your stuff kind of over to the side and to just take a couple minutes and to sit in his presence. Uh, If nothing else, this can be a welcome silence in the midst of a very loud and busy day. And so we just close your eyes. Maybe if you're comfortable, just put your hands out in a posture that just says, Jesus, I'm open to receiving from you. Just take a deep breath. Just rest in his presence. Living Christ, it is our longing for some of us to hear from you. Maybe for others, our willingness to hear from you. And if we're really, really honest, for some of us, our fear to hear from you.
But Jesus, we invite you to come and meet us, to speak, to show us where we've just glanced and looked away and pretended like that rock wasn't moved. Where we've gazed and we've looked and we've tried to figure out every solution that could be possible. And for some of us, where we've looked and really believed. And so, Holy Spirit, would you meet us now in the quiet and speak to our hearts. Show us where we are, what it looks like for us to hear from you and step forward. Give us the grace of hearing you speak our name.